Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry with my lisp here, <laughs> my missing tooth. Um, I am an exercise physiologist. I'm a licensed nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Uh, this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and oh, just try to get in as much stuff as I can. So, Hi, Dr. Mike Nelson, owner of Extreme Human Performance, faculty member at the Kerrigan Institute. Bunch of other stuff, and I got to go to a metal concert last night, so I was pretty excited. Yeah, sweet. Yeah. And who's our guest? Andy Galpin here. I can't stack up any of your credentials. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm a PhD as well. I'm the director for the Center for Sport Performance at Cal State Fullerton, and I'm a bit part-time muscle scientist and researcher and part-time coach and an even smaller part-time athlete. Awesome. All right. We we just have one listener question because we want to get to Andy's origin story, everyone. But this is for Phil, um, oh. actually. So I warned him ahead of time. This is a sort of hallway question, so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna paraphrase a little. But it says, "Question for Phil." After looking online at some competitive performances, I'm confused. How much bigger should my deadlift be than my squat, and will this change with competitive experience? The question is, how much more should his deadlift be than his squat? Yeah, and will that change with his experience on the platform? It depends. Um, I have lifters that are either way. So um, a lot of it comes down to your your natural levers and how you're built. So I have lifters that are better at naturally better at pulling than they are squatting, and I have vice versa. So um, like myself, I've always been better at, at deadlift. Usually what you see is... Uh, long-limbed people, like people with long legs, uh, long arms, are better at pulling. Uh, people with shorter limbs are better at squatting and benching. So, uh, for me, squatting was always a battle. They're kind of evened out now, but then I have lifters that are vice versa. Like Becky, we're getting ready to go to Worlds. Her squat is always 40, 40 to 50 pounds above her deadlift. Oh, okay. uh, just because she's naturally built to squat. So... I would say it's dependent. I mean, I think in the long run, with a lot of work, you can get them close to the same. Like right now, mine are within 20 pounds of each other probably. Uh, but that's going to have to be a, a, a choice of yours, you know, basically to attack your weakness. If you're a naturally good squatter, you'll probably have to really attack your deadlift and or vice versa. So I think in time, you can get them close to each other. But... Uh, and one shouldn't be if you want to be a well-rounded athlete one shouldn't be way way higher than the other okay i think that was it because i think he's of the impression that his his deadlift should be bigger at least as a sort of you know early intermediate you know and i didn't know competitively if it's just a body type thing because you you really brought up you brought up your squat a lot you know so yeah i brought my squat way up and i mean part of that's being surgically repaired and not in pain now (laughs) okay but uh the other part of that is just I decided to concentrate on it. Like the last two years of my last two years of competition, I didn't deadlift much at all. 
I put 90% of my concentration on bringing my squat up. So, okay. and just let the deadlift kind of happen. Now, just now in the last three, four months, I'm actually giving a day to deadlifting again. So, okay. So for you, a lot of it was, it's not just your competitive experience that made them close. Uh, you had to bring up the squat because you are longer limbed. Is that fair? Yeah. 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 No, okay. that, that's very fair. And, you know, I a lot of my athletes are like Dow. Dow is one of my better athletes that's uh, shorter limbed. He's built the squat. So I think his best squat is 840, 840-ish. His best deadlift is 765. So. Oh, okay. And then Brian, on the other hand, is just huge, and he's got about a 903 and a 903. So his are right in line with each other. So. so it's not an expectation that one should be bigger than the other. It's all about your body shape, and it's not just yep. about competitive experience. It's more about your body shape and what you're targeting, right? Yeah, and, I mean, back in the day when when I was coming up, and even 10 years ago, like all the writing out there was on equipped lifting. So you'd see these huge squats and these small deadlifts, and people thought that was the norm. And uh, mm-hmm. even, even Westside for a while just believed you didn't need to pull that you, your deadlift would come along with just your squat. Uh, mm-hmm. And now we're getting a lot more raw knowledge out there. You're seeing huge deadlifts now. So, uh, But, I mean, again, it comes down to your body type and and uh, you know, just what you're naturally meant to do. I mean, right. So. No, good stuff. Okay, uh, fellas, that's all I've got. So I don't want to, you know, ramble about too much random news with our guest on. So um, let's get to the guest. Yeah, so give us a little background on yourself andy yeah sure as i mentioned uh you know i'm a, a full-time scientist and uh a phd like yourself dr nelson uh but you know prior to that i i did my undergraduate degree at a small school in oregon um you know bachelor's in, in exercise science kind of thing i think that's what it was called i can't even remember to be honest but something like so that. long ago well that you know like people always ask me i'll get parents or or, you know, young people occasionally will ask, like, what's the difference between a kinesiology degree or exercise science or movement sciences? And I'm like, not a goddamn thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all terminology. So anyways, I got that. Um, I was a college football player, so I had that background. You know, I have, um, you know, I won't get into too much detail here because I would just go ahead and guess that my, you know, youth and my teenage years were probably about as identical as the three of yours are because it, we all seem to have about the same story, <laughs> which is like at some point when we were in our teens, we fell in love with lifting, uh, generally because we were good athletes, but not tremendous athletes. So we were good enough to where when we got stronger, uh, we got better and we played sports better. So we were incentivized a little bit to want to know how to do it the best way possible. But we weren't so good of athletes that training didn't matter. And so there was strong incentive there and just became a junkie, you know. Uh, all these things fell in love with, particularly weightlifting, uh, you know, Olympic weightlifting, if, if you might call it, but weightlifting in general. Uh, and then uh, once I got out of college, I went down and spent some time in Arizona working at a place called Athletes Performance. It's now called Exos, but back then it was the only facility that kind of was this one-stop shop for all professional athletes, and they had this integration of physical therapy and athletic training and nutrition and and only trained professional athletes so got to spend some time working with you know the pros and the combine folks and all that stuff and went back to school got my master's uh, degree in you know same shit even movement sciences i think it's called but you know, same thing i uh, got my hand in research there and 
started doing biopsies with weightlifting and high power overtraining and squatting with chains and looking at how it changed muscle physiology and things like that. And then popped over to, uh, to Indiana, got my PhD in human bioenergetics and started training, competing in combat sports and grappling and submission wrestling and things like that. And then got my job out here about eight years ago at Fullerton and started my lab, which is the biochemistry and molecular exercise physiology lab. And then just uh, a couple of years ago, took over the Center for Sport Performance when the legendary Lee Brown retired. And so I work for the most part uh, with combat sport athletes. So uh, I have a boxer competing today, actually, in Vegas, which would be pretty good. And I had a weightlifter compete yesterday, uh, which was awesome and, and fun stuff. So... I'm kind of all over the board, a little bit of weightlifting, but mostly boxers, wrestlers, uh, a lot of UFC fighters. So um, I'm kind of all over there. I get to do a little, I get my hand a little bit in research. Uh, I would, I always kind of say I'm, I'm, I'm not even close to the best muscle scientist out there. I'm certainly not the best coach out there. I'm not the best teacher out there, but uh, I can do all of those things a little bit non-shitty. So, you know, that's kind of where I'm at. Nice. And I know you even developed the weightlifting program there at Cal State Fullerton because they didn't have as much as compared to what they do now, correct? Yeah, oh, we had nothing, yeah. So I started the weightlifting club there, which is awesome. So we've had, uh, for a couple of years in a row, we had some of the biggest ever non-national USA weightlifting meets. So we had several hundred people showing up to our local meets, which was really awesome. And we don't... Uh, club is a little bit different so we're not really making competitive athletes there uh, we're generally trying to take folks that are uh you know seniors in kinesiology but they've actually never snatched a clean and jerk but there's no way they're gonna go to the rec center and do it because they can't drop weights and they're too embarrassed because they're senior and they're kinesiology and they should know how to do this stuff but they don't or honestly people from other walks of life that come in and like i want to try this stuff but i don't want to go to a crossfit gym and again same barriers to entry and so I would say like 90% of our people in our club have never actually ever snatched or cleaned or really started the club, maybe higher than 90%. And a lot of them were never even athletes. A lot of them were like, no, I didn't play a single sport in high school or maybe like you know, ran cross country once or, or cheerleaders or something like that. So in, in my mind, uh, we have a list of 10 things that are, that are the goals of that club. And I don't think you, until you get to number eight do you see you know, things like make someone better at weightlifting. Hey. So, but the first like seven are related to they want to have just an amazing positive positive experience with training and whether they love weightlifting or not I want them to walk out and just be like man that lifting weight stuff is fun boom that's it that's all that's that's the main goal of the club so occasionally we produce some people that are reasonably decent at weightlifting but I really don't give a shit honestly to be truly honest the best three or four people we've ever had in our club I've just I've kicked out basically <laughs> <laughs> and I've said, like, hey, here's this guy, Sean Waxman, up the road, or this guy out down here. Like, they're real weightlifting coaches. You need to go up there because you have real talent. And, you know, you can go to Pan Am Games or national championships and things like that. Uh, and, and we've done that because I'm like, hey, I can't. Like, I don't have the time to, to do all the programming and everything that you need because you're actually pretty talented. Uh, I'm here just trying to make sure we have enough PVC pipes <laughs> every day. That's, <laughs> that's all I'm really doing. The students coming in, how do you find their... I maybe lack of a better word, just exercise performance is. So I know when I was in the lab several years ago, I ran one of the labs for three and a half years of just the student, you know, the 400 level exercise phys, and 
it was interesting. You had some students who were, you know, very athletic, competed on various teams, and I was kind of surprised you had a lot of other, you know, students who were in exercise phys, and some of them never really trained, which was kind of shocking to me that you had that wide of a spectrum. Yeah, and that's, that's absolutely true. Uh, I mean, if you look at, I teach a senior level program design class, and, I, you know, I ask the first day if there's 35 people in that class, five of them have ever written a workout program before, and yeah. 30 haven't. And more importantly, on the first, I honestly, man, I, to be honest, I spend the first three weeks of the class going over the difference between powerlifting and weightlifting, and the difference between, you know, a deadlift and an RDL. And the difference between what's a military press and what's a bench press. I, honestly, this is a senior level class. Uh, senior and grad students in there. And it, it's funny because I never used to do that. I used to just kind of jump right into it. And after enough years, I realized, man, people just... like There's so many people in this class that don't have a fundamental background in training. Like I just assume you did. But they don't. Like This is the difference between hypertrophy and strength. Things like that. So yeah, it's... it's um, they're not nearly as where most of them are not nearly as up to speed as what you think they would be for what the degree is. Yeah, do you think that's because they're looking at it from more as an adjunct to another degree? It's like when we were when I was at the University yeah. of Minnesota, we had a lot of people who were exercise phys who then were going to go on to physical therapy. I know a lot of you know, Lonnie students are kind of in that similar boat too. It was, it was very few that actually would go into strength and conditioning other than a couple. It seemed like exercise phys was kind of more of a feeder program for more advanced work in a different area. Yeah, if you polled our freshmen and sophomores, you would see 95% want to go to physical therapy. Yeah. But our program's huge, too. we got 2,000 undergrads in our program. Wow. That's nice. Yes, something like that. So it's a huge, huge, huge number that want to go to physical therapy. As you get to senior, it's probably dropped to 50%, but still a tremendous amount of them, and something like 5% will actually get in, which is really funny. But yeah, most of them are there. We also, for a couple of years, we used to have this problem of you know, exercise science or kinesiology would be the default to those who couldn't make it from chemistry but wanted to go to med school. <laughs> You know, and so we got a lot of those junkies, but then we sort of changed things, and now it's it's quite different because of our reputation. We just have so many kids that want to come in here and do strength conditioning uh, because because we we were one of the few programs when we say like you're going to take a class called strength conditioning, where there's a major in strength conditioning, you're you're taking a fucking strength conditioning class. Like we're in we're, we're doing strength conditioning the whole time. We're not doing like four classes of exercise and cardiac rehab, and then at the end of one semester, one of the classes we'll talk about you know resistance exercise so people the word has gotten out now people are like no i want to i want to spend my graduate work in strength or i want to you know take four of these different strength we have five five different strength conditioning specific classes academic lecture classes not like wow. in the gym so academic that's classes. awesome so the word has gotten out now and so we have a i can tell you without question my first couple of years if i ask that question about how many of you have ever written a program for an athlete one or two hands would go up and now it's 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 you know five sometimes ten in the class maybe more and, and so that culture is very much changed we have a lot of people that come in and they're like look I want to be a strength conditioning coach in college or I want to go get a PhD and study performance stuff so it really really has changed quite a bit and uh, we, we still have a decent amount though in those classes that 
that are going to go into separate fields, healthcare stuff, but they, they're so, they're just junkies. And so they, they want to learn how to actually put together a reasonable program just because they want to work out better. So, which is cool, man. We, we have, we didn't have that in the past. So. No, that's good. Do you find kind of a similar mix of students, Lonnie? Um, yeah, I, I would say 80% of our freshmen, uh, want to do physical therapy, um, we used to only have one strength conditioning class, uh, but in the last just three years, we've fleshed that out to three uh, with a more practical component to it. Um, but similar to Andy's experience, I think, uh, I don't know, maybe in contrast, but I had a lot of students when I taught strength conditioning, and I don't now. I do more, well, just other stuff. But um, they wanted to jump right into Olympic lifts, and uh, I'd say yeah. a third of them, I'd Ooh. say, I'd say, let's just see where you're at, you know, um, because you want to go right literally to weighted barbells and they've never done it before right and i'm like this this isn't a um i I mean the lab component of the class was more about the coaching stuff you know mine was more about you know the anatomy and the physiology and some of the metabolism stuff but i'd say let's grab a doorknob and see if you can't squat down with your butt between your heels you know and i'd say a third of them couldn't do it you know and oh yeah yeah. so they want to do weighted lifts right out of the gate with no experience at all, and like you, Mike, I do see quite a few students. They're in exercise physiology courses, um, and I mean, geez, even forget about programming. They they're not very <laughs> fit. They're just they want to do clinical careers, and they're they're really quite sedentary. You know, they don't have any kind of mobility, flexibility, baseline strength, uh, aerobic base, just not much of any of the above. You know, but that's changed a little bit for us too. I mean. You know, moving a little more toward the strength conditioning, um, and honestly, I I think it's more than time for that, right? Because we all know that, you know, twenty years ago, most of exercise physiology was aerobic type stuff, endurance type stuff, and yeah, and then slowly was you know painfully we moved toward more strength conditioning stuff. So it is more popular, but yeah, we still get a lot of that step, stepping stone toward uh, clinical careers, if you will. Yeah, man, we got, in, in my kind of introductory strength conditioning class, it's still, you know, you have to be a senior to take it, but it's kind of our first foray in the conditioning. And I would say of the 40 people per semester, at least half of them uh, have no idea how to actually squat. Uh, at least half of them, maybe even three quarters of them still. And we take a whole day and we go through basic squatting mechanics, and it, it's like their life has changed. You know, they, <laughs> it, it's unbelievable the reactions I get because they're, and a lot of these people are working out, and a lot of them, you know, if I ask them questions about how uh, do you train, do you write your own programs, like all their hands would go up, and then we teach them the very basics of here's how to do a split squat, uh, you know, here's what a hinge should look like, and they're just, like their minds are blown because their feet are everywhere. They're just, I mean, they're just train wrecks. And they're like, wow, no one's ever told me how to squat before. I'm like, yeah, yeah, funny, huh? So, yeah, right. I agree, man. Yeah. Do you find people come into your gym, Phil, are at a higher or kind of a lower level, or do you just kind of attract people that kind of know who you are and are a little bit more experienced coming in? More now, I, I get a few people that are brand new, but most of what I'm getting is is people that are experienced. Yeah. Um, we don't advertise, so it's all word of mouth. So it's usually athletes that hear about us, or I meet them at meets, and uh, I still get that dumb. We were talking about this the other day. That I totally want to come to your gym, but I need to get strong first. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. It's like you realize that's what we do. 
that's exactly what we do at the gym. You know, we make you that. So you probably should just come. But, Ready to go uh, to the club because I got to get in shape first. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I need to get in shape to go to the gym. So, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm getting mainly uh, I'd say you know uh, intermediate level people to start. Intermediate to high. Nice. Cool. Well, we'll go to break, and then we'll get into the topic of the day with Dr. Andy Gelpin here and the crew about muscle fiber types and if there's anything you can do about it and how it relates to training. Hey, listeners. This is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle. Oh, you poor meathead. All that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hey, welcome back to Iron Radio. Dr. Mike T. Nelson, Dr. Lonnie Lowry, Coach Phil Stevens, and we have a special guest today, Dr. Andy Gelpin. And we're going to talk all about muscle fiber types, what are the different types, and is there anything you can really do with your training? Uh, maybe possibly genetic influences and a bunch of other stuff, since Andy has spent a bunch of time actually dissecting out individual fibers and done a lot of very cool work related to that. Um, can you give us just a rundown of the different fiber types for people listening in who you know may not be familiar with it and don't have much of a background in it? Yeah, sure. 
most people are aware and have heard that there's you know fast twitch and slow twitch fiber types, but it's actually quite uh, quite a bit more complex than that. So it's really a bit semantical, borderline pedantical, where it, really honestly your muscle kind of exists just on a continuum. And on one end of the spectrum, it is you know the fastest, fastest, and on the other end, it is the slowest, slowest. And so we tend to, as humans, like to make things into categories and further subcategories to make things easier for us to process. And so anytime you really hear somebody talk about a fiber type, they've just arbitrarily drawn a line somewhere and said this is a different one for some reason. Um, now, what we typically do is we look at uh, the fibers themselves, and there's some neat characteristics that are just simply quite different uh, between the fiber types. And one of them is what's called the myosin heavy chain. And if you, anyway, you've had exercise physiology class, uh, you, you may remember about some power stroke and how there's an ATPase molecule on the myosin, etc. And if you haven't, that doesn't matter. But my point is that molecule is different between at least the, the fast ones and the slow ones. And it's different enough to where it's very, very easy to tell uh, in the laboratory if it's one of these faster slows. And so what that ends, ends up uh, giving out is in humans, you have three what are called pure fiber types. So you have a pure slow twitch, a pure fast twitch, and a pure ultra-fast twitch. That's 1, 2A, and 2X. And then, as I mentioned, it's actually a continuum. So in between each of those pure fiber types, you have what are called hybrid fiber types. And so these are single muscle cells, <coughs> excuse me, your muscle fibers, which are the same thing, that co-express multiple fiber types in the same cell. And so just like you have a car that can either be on electric or gas... And then you have cars that are half gas, half electric. We call those hybrid cars. Well, it's the same thing. So you can have a muscle fiber that is still one fiber, but it is half fast twitch, you know, 2A, and then it's half super fast twitch, 2A. So we would call that, or 2X, so we would call that muscle fiber a 2A, 2X, half gas, half electric. And there's a half slow, half fast, which is one 2A. And then there are even fiber types that run the whole spectrum. So this is, again, a single cell that is a type 1, type 2A, and a 2X in the same fiber. So this would be like half gas, half electric, half diesel. And I don't know the math there, but you get the idea. Right, so uh, what we typically can do then is, is, is look at people across the spectrum, what our laboratory has done, and what I'm literally is open on my computer right now, is we ran uh, a bunch of analyses on uh, a bunch of people from Olympic weightlifting world championships last year. And we're running through their fiber types, and we're trying to see how many of these fast, slow hybrids and super fast that people have. And so it's counterintuitive, and if you look throughout the literature and on coaching things, you'll hear people talk about these 2X fibers or you know, super fast fibers, and uh, they actually don't do what people think they do. So although they are faster, technically, they are tremendously rare in humans, and <laughs> It's counterintuitive, like I said, because the only people that actually have them at any substantial number are people that are extremely sick, sedentary, obese, uh, extremely. Uh, they have them in reasonable. In fact, I don't even know. I think we we're trying to calculate this roughly, but we've probably now analyzed uh, 40 or 50,000 individual muscle fibers in my lab. And I've never seen anybody with more than 1% of these 2X fibers. So they're just very, very rare um, now, we actually have just got some tissue that we ran yesterday from some folks who were in their 60s and 70s and 80s 
that have end stage renal failure, and they actually start to have a you know ten or twenty percent of virus. So it's kind of funny to think again the people that you know the fiber type that most people think they want is actually it's like oh yeah you can get it if you want you just you know have to get renal failure and not exercise for thirty years <laughs> right <laughs> and you get the fiber type you want. The other the hybrid fibers uh, the two A two X are a little also not as clear but they're they're fairly clear they're generally also only associated with sedentary behavior not as extreme so if you took the average person on the street out there it'll just take even the average college person who's you know like oh yeah i go to the gym okay like oh no you go to the rec center a couple times a week and you do curls but you don't actually do your legs if you biopsy those folks their 2a2x concentration in their legs would be you know probably 10 or 15 percent and most sedentary people, say, you know, at-home middle-aged folks are maybe 20%. Maybe they'll hire the 282Xs. And it seems to be pretty clear those things go away when you do any type of physical training, whether it be steady state, endurance work, intervals, strength training, circuit strength training, powerlifting training, uh, weightlifting training. It doesn't really matter. Those things tend to go away and convert into a pure 2A fiber. And then when it's, it's a, a very, very... Uh, Extreme confusion are the 1-2A fibers. We typically thought those were pretty similar to the 2A2Xs, but we've just seen a ton of athletes that actually have those in, in pretty high quantities. And so I honestly still don't know what those things are uh, or if you know what their real relevance to having a 1-2A um, hybrid fiber is. So that's, that's kind of a quick overview of the state of, of the literature at this point. Very cool. Um, why do you think it is that more untrained people have more 2X fibers? It seems very, as you pointed out, counterintuitive. Yeah, that's a very good question. I get this one a lot. Quick answer is I don't know because I can't ever fucking find them to study them. <laughs> so <laughs> this is the problem. Like I'm trying to study why unicorns like hay over grass. On the <laughs> right. <laughs> so the the prevailing theory, and this is just straight up theory, is there has to be a difference in metabolic cost. Um, that favors them in this case, and uh, this is—it's bad logic, but it's the best we can do. Is you know, perhaps it's sort of the, what we know is those fibers are generally on their way out. So the cell's about to die when it converts to being a two X, and so <clears throat> potentially it's simply saying, you know, we're going to convert to the fastest isoform possible, such that if we have to explode and get away from danger, we can. Uh, one last gasp, if you will. But I even think that logic is stupid because, you know. Like okay, well yeah, you can jump one time really fast, but you know if that predator can make it more than two steps, it's going to still eat your ass because you're going to be tired. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think one step really helps you evolutionarily that much. No, that's, that's valid. Um, and with training, you mentioned it sounds like these can be rather plastic to training, and is it advantageous to try <laughs> to train to change a muscle fiber type, even though you probably wouldn't really know it unless you stuff a needle in your leg and measure it? Well, yeah, actually, there's a couple things on that. Yes, I think it is tremendously advantageous. Um, people will talk about fiber type changing, and it's just it's just beyond reproach. If people say, say your fiber types can't change with training, it's, uh, I mean, they're as far behind the literature as you could be saying, like, well, you shouldn't squat. That stuff's bad for you. Like, you know, that's where we are with fiber types. Like we, we've now had, I don't even know, close to 100 studies over 30 years like, okay, like we're going to move past that. And most people have. But people still think you can't 
you know, go one of the directions. So they'll say things like, well, you can gain more fast twitch, but you can't gain more slow twitch or something. And that's also just beyond reproach. So we have so much evidence to suggest they can go in any direction. Now, I think why uh, just the strength coach in me, or the, the strength junkie in me, I should say, looks at that and says, well, I think this is just specificity in action. So when you don't give yourself a stimulus, the fibers kind of default to these hybrid modes because they're they're waiting to see what you're going to challenge it to do, and so they're going to kind of give you as much of a well-rounded brace, give you a little bit of endurance, a little bit of strength, kind of move it everywhere because you really haven't told it what to do. You start adding, you know, endurance demands, then they they shift over to the endurance isoforms, and if you start adding strength and size demands and hypertrophy demands or whatever they happen to be. It's going to go the opposite direction. So I think it's honestly, it's just a case of specificity. And we see that evidently, like very, very clear when we look at high level weightlifters or anyone. Um, we've had powerlifters in, we've had uh, MMA fighters under the needle, and, and they just don't have any of these hybrid fibers. And they're very, very isolated and specific into their, their given things. We've had uh, marathon runners, ultra marathoners, things like that. They're there. So it's going to be specificity driving at number one, which is good. And in terms of, from practitioners and coaches, I think this is, it's also a bit of a reality check. And I think a good example of this, and I'm going to throw Mike, one of our buddies under the, under the bus here publicly, which I probably shouldn't do, but I'm going to do it anyways, because he already did it himself. So we had, uh, last year I had, uh, you know, our mutual friend Lou Schuler out to the lab and Lou's a, a middle-aged guy, if you will. And he's certainly a strength training junkie and he, he trains a lot and stuff, but he hasn't really done much conditioning work in quite some time. And we biopsied him, and he actually had a, a pretty decent amount of these 2A2X fibers. And he was pretty thrown off because he's like, man, I train a lot actually for my age, and he's way stronger than the average person his age, and he's into this stuff. And he wrote this up for, for Men's Health, and he, he kind of concluded the piece. He's like, you know, I think, I think I just need some more conditioning work. And so to me, the take-home message here is I, I think it really calls you out on your on your – uh, it's hard for you to deny, like, oh yeah, I'm in shape, I'm in shape. And when we take these samples, it's like, really? Well, muscle says you're not. And muscle says you're not very fit. You might be kind of strong, but you're not very fit here. Uh, and so the 2A2X fibers in particular seem to be pretty um, responsive to to conditioning, training, and or obesity. And so we've had people uh, under under the knife, if you will, that are very, 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 very strength-trained. Again, we're talking elite-level, world-caliber, Olympic-caliber weightlifters or powerlifters. And they actually have a decent amount of these 2A2X fibers as well. And so one thing we're trying to figure out here is is what exactly is this relationship between body size, uh, body fat, and these 2A2X fibers? Because we ha- what we haven't had is somebody under the table who is extremely large, uh, in terms of body mass, very, very well trained and very, very lean, with the exception of one person. So it, it's still a bit confusing. We're still trying to work out a lot of these things. Um, but yeah, I think it is is important for us to, to take a look at this stuff. And in fact, uh, uh, a guy yesterday who just got second in, in uh, the American Open Finals, I can say this because he already came out in public, he made a big post about it yesterday, that he took some of the results we found from his fiber type to treat his tweaked his chain, training a little bit and had huge jumps in his performance. And he got second yesterday, and he's, he's potentially going to be back on the world team, which is a big deal for him because he's not, you know, he's only been doing weightlifting for three years now. So uh, there's merit there. We just have a lot to tease out. And I can give you maybe one specific example, uh, and this is totally not usable yet, 
But this is the type of stuff that we're actually working on right now, which is we have extremely clear evidence. Just the fast twitch and the slow twitch fibers respond differently. Uh, we did a study a handful of years ago with taper, uh, and this was in endurance runners, so it's a bit different, uh, but these are cross-country runners. And what we saw was with the three-week taper with a 50% reduction in mileage over the three weeks, that we saw about 10 to 15% increases in speed, power, and size of the fast twitch fibers specifically. Hmm. Now, this isn't like speed or power like one at max. This is you take the muscle fiber, you isolate it, you put it in a Petri dish, you put it on a force transducer, and you measure the maximum power velocity of the individual fiber itself. And about 10 to 15% increases in those in the fast twitch fibers, but not the slow twitch fibers, just with reduced steady-state endurance training. And so I would love to repeat this in an anaerobic taper and start to see, you know, is the same thing happening? Is it volume? Is it taper? Like, what's actually going on here? And now we have, uh, you know, again, another case for, for an athlete needing, you know, who's more slow twitch, needing a different rep range for development or for peaking than an athlete who's more fast twitch. And, and uh, we've put this into play with actually several of the athletes that we biopsied from worlds last year and, uh, that were competing this year where we've changed their taper, we've changed their their volume stuff kind of based on this, and it, it actually lined up and worked out pretty well. So this is the type of stuff we can get to, and as I opened with this stuff, like it's, a, it's a tr- way more speculation than science at this point, but we have some science to back up the speculation, and, but this is the type of stuff we're going to get to. Yeah, that, that's super interesting, and I'll ask Phil this, and I'll ask Lonnie this also. Is so, Phil? Do you, when you're writing programs and working with your athletes, do you ever think about muscle fiber type, or are you just more worried about where they're weak, where they need to get strong, or any thought process around it? <laughs> no, I mean, the thing is, I was just gonna, I was gonna talk right before you jumped in there, Mike. The interesting thing is, you're bringing science to what us as practitioners have to figure out on our own, like yep. through uh, trial and error. For instance, I have two athletes that are close, both female, both closest to each other in maximal strength, both powerlifters. One excels at like nothing over three reps in all of her training. The other, it's like sets of 10 to 15. So, I mean, and that's one thing that's like people ask me all the time, well, what kind of training do you do in general? And it's like, well, it depends, you know, because all these people just, they, they respond in a different way, which is likely due to some of this that you're talking about. Um, just how they're made up and how, you know, what they respond to personally. So, um, yeah, it's just figuring that out. The bad thing is I don't have a machine. I don't have a lab where, where I can test these people and, and, and see what they what they are literally made of. Let, but, let me ask uh, this, Phil, actually, because this is one thing. We've actually just done a whole bunch of studies on females specifically because the old contention was – Females had more slow twitch fibers, and I think mm-hmm. if you look across the literature at, at, the, at the population level, that's fairly true. But uh, we're not necessarily finding that at the elite athlete level, especially in yeah. the strength sports. Mm-hmm. But uh, what, I'm, what I actually like this is just part of my my brain is, is I've been for a year or so I've been asking every coach I get my hands on like, hey, you train female strength power athletes? Okay, yes, you do. Do you find that that's holding true? Do you find females generally handle and actually need volume more? Uh, than males or no, and, and I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, 
Again, you're on a soft no, people. No, I, I'd say now, I mean, 10 years ago, I'd say maybe, yeah. But now, no. But we're dealing with a different, we're dealing with different women now, <laughs> if that makes sense. In the last 10 years, they have come a, a tremendously long ways in strength sports. The women are making, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, the women have made more progress in the last 10 years than the guys have made in 40. Sure. <laughs> you know, so the women I'm dealing with, I'm talking, you know, baseline at our, our facility now is 315. And once you're at 315, okay, you're starting to get strong on squat and deadlift. So, um, you know, we're dealing with women that are tremendously strong. So, uh, n- no, I don't think, I think it's an individual thing more than anything. And the, the, despite the sex of the person. Actually, so. I think that's, that's really uh, impressive what you said at the end there. I think I would actually agree that I think the person-to-person differences are much bigger than the gender-to-gender differences. Yeah, Because yeah. I have seen some of the, the girls that do come in, and it's like, yeah, they hold true to that adage. But then, man, I've had some of the girls come in, and I'm like, holy crap. I just I don't think you respond that way. I can't wait. Um, I'm trying to work this one out, but I want to get Steffi, Steffi Cohen in here, uh-huh. like, get you know get a look at that stuff and go, okay, like, like let's see here. And, uh, yeah. I tried to get some of the other girls that are kind of on her level in, but it's just, you know. They don't want me to take a chunk of their muscle. Yeah, I mean, that's like, for instance, I have a new client that just started. She did her first powerlifting meet. I have her never, never done one. Um, she pulled 460 like it was nothing. Whew. And not, wow. not <laughs> you know, not trained, really. I mean, she did a few months of training and just decided to do a meet. What's her body um, weight? Uh, she was 190. God, that's good though. So, that's a but she's lean. Yeah. She's like six three. Jeez. So, uh, yeah, and you know she's benching two thirty. Oh, <laughs> you know. So, as collegiate basketball player, and decided to take up uh, powerlifting. But and I love this. So. I actually, <clears throat> I had a girl too. My uh, Mike, you talked about the club. <laughs> One of the reasons I started the club is I, I make all my students do a max deadlift. Mm-hmm. Which sounds easy. Like, that's funny how you just react. You're like, yeah, yeah, of course, right? Yeah. But, can I mean, Lonnie, can you imagine that? Can you imagine making all of your students? <laughs> like, yeah. No way, right? Right. Well, I do it specifically because of this. I'm like, no, you're seniors and your grad students in strength and conditioning. And, and 80% of you, 90% of you have never done even a heavy deadlift. Easily half of them have never been deadlifted. And I make them go through this process, and you would be shocked with the talent that I've found in my classes. Where I've had people do that same thing. Girls, they step up the first time and they're deadlifting almost, you know, almost double body weight their first time yeah. with just rock solid technique. And I'm like, whoa! Yeah. And I have to show them numbers, standards, and they're like, holy shit! I'm already top ten in the country in my body weight. Yeah. Whatever, you know, not that, but you get the idea, right? And I'm like, yeah. holy shit! Yeah, you could walk on, you could qualify for national championships right now. Now their their bench tends to be just way behind. Yeah, yeah. It's way behind, but their deadlift or their squats sometimes. Mm-hmm. Just rock solid. Yeah. So yep. it, it's good, man. It's just awesome to keep exposing these people to these sports. Uh, I'm sure you guys are heard, but you know, going on right now um, in Vegas is the American Open finals. Mm-hmm. I think is what they call it now, and it's the biggest. It's a Guinness World Record. It's the biggest weightlifting meet in world in world history. Yeah. It's crazy. Like almost you know sixteen, almost seventeen hundred people competing in weightlifting. Yeah. No, it's good. Uh, Two thousand people there. Uh, watching which is nuts man i mean i remember when i was competing 
and I lived in the Midwest, you know, we were in uh, Memphis and we were in Indiana, and it was like we'd have to look at our calendars five months out and be like, okay, there's a beach <laughs> in Columbus, you know, like and there's another one in New York, and okay, we can drive down to Alabama for another one here. It's just like we couldn't find them anywhere. And we yeah. drive all the way out there, and you cut weight, and you get there, and there'd be nobody within three weight classes of you because you know there's only eight people that showed up, and three of them were juniors. I'm like, geez, this sucks. So. Yeah. Thank God for Columbus, man. I actually exactly. have a car lifting going. Yeah, I think we have, what, 16 lifters out there this weekend. So, in Vegas. It's nuts, man. And the girls are going up. We're actually doing, uh, I got to leave this show in a few hours. I got to go down. USA Weightlifting is really, really smart. Phil Andrews is just, just murdering it right now. And he's figured out that a lot, if not most, of their best lifters are coming from gymnastics, mm-hmm. which makes sense for Olympic weightlifting, right? Yeah, and so what they're doing is they've actually partnered with uh, USA Gym Gymnastics, and they're doing all kinds of combines at these huge gymnastic meets. And so we're going down there, and there's one in Irvine, and we're going to run all these gym- gymnasts through, uh, you know, vertical jump and broad jump and just stuff like that to start getting that a pipeline in is, is like a you know pseudo talent identification, but more like just to kind of expose them, and then we show them all how to do power cleans. Yeah, uh, but it's just nuts how many people. Uh, I mean, you got, it's crazy, dude, you got, I don't know what it's like powerlifting because it's not sanctioned, but with weightlifting, you have several high school kids now that are making six figures a year weightlifting. Yes. No, high yeah, school. it's, well, I mean, we had, we talked about this, what, two weeks ago. I took a lifter down, and in a weekend, he took second and made $4,000. The guy that took first <laughs> took 12500 home. That's insane. You know, and yeah, there's money in it now. It's great. That's what the sports need. I won a hundred dollars at the Arnold <laughs> last time. I won a hundred bucks. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that was why, like, I, I sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, I was a former pro lifter. Yeah. What? Yeah. One time they gave me a hundred bucks. That's it. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. That qualifies. That's pro. You're paid, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. There's no pro card. Got my pro card. I'm IBFF weightlifting pro. Yep. Oh. Very cool. Uh, do you do much with uh, fiber type and coffee research in your lab, Lonnie? Uh, no, not really. I mean, a, a lot of my initial exposure to things like fiber typing and stuff, that's a old Bill Gonye stuff to me, you know, like the Texas <laughs> stuff from the 80s and 90s. And um, yeah. I mean, I'm interested in lately in the effects of estrogen and what it does to different, the way you metabolize coffee. But when you guys are talking about volume requirements and you know, can women handle more? I, I tend to think more along the lines of not just fiber typing, but, you know, some of that work from Tony Hackney's lab about uh, estrogen being protective of muscle tissue. And I think that mm-hmm. may, or, you know, like your maybe damage markers recover more quickly or, or whatever it is in women. I think that might play a role in the practical applications of this too, right? Not just trying to do it specific to fiber type, but can women handle more volume? Because of the antioxidant or whatever qualities that, that estradiol has, right, might also affect the kind of volume, if that makes any sense. No, it totally does. I actually think the bigger thing there is uh, potentially of connective tissue and ligament and tendon health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think that's where the estrogen really plays plays in. Is like if, if it, you know, because because muscle will basically repair. It's not a muscle issue. It's almost always a joint issue or a ligament or connective tissue issue. That's what breaks you down, right? You're not. You don't go not squat today because your muscle's too sore. You don't go not squat because your knee's fucking killing you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's always that problem. So I think some, something in the female species allows them to have a connective... And yes, I said species, right? I consider them a different species most times. Uh, 
just kidding, obviously. But <laughs> no, no, like I think that's that's the real something is really unique there. I've often said if if we designed sports around the ability to withstand repeated, you know, oh, micro trauma, yeah. women would be the best in the world, not the men. Uh, but you know. I'm not a fiber type expert, so at least from what I've been able to see, the kind of things that Phil mentions from his gym, you know, the, some of the endocrine effects and stuff like that. I do think women would probably be the best in the world because they just uh, they seem to recover or, or not fall apart quite as much as men under under volume. But again, there's got to be huge individual differences even yeah, within well, within a sex, you know. Then you have to get into just because they can handle more volume, do they need more volume? Yeah. Is, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, at a connective tissue level, yeah, they can throw it. We can throw it at them, and they'll take it. But does that create the best progress for the individual athlete? Mm-hmm. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. You know, I have some athletes that yeah, throw me, throw me six sets of ten over ten weeks, and I'm going to kill it. You know, and then others are just toast. Right, so, and you know, I think there's also, I mean, you could, we could talk about. You know, Phil, I, sometimes I'll use the word tissue assassin, you know, the way bodybuilders will yeah. purposely try to eccentrically wreck muscle tissue. And yeah. But there's obviously the CNS kind of things that go on. I mean, you know, Mike, you and I, of course, have been talking about HRV a lot lately, and I'm trying to think of practical ways to assess this, you know. Um, so I think there's the systemic uh, stress of huge amounts of volume for long periods of time as well, obviously. So. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, last question, we're winding down here. I have to ask you, Andy, about genetics. And, I mean, a lot of these genetic testing companies are kind of popping up all over. 23andMe has been around for quite a while, but there's even more specific kind of ones geared towards athletes. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And do you find that they're at a point where they're practically useful for, you know, coaches and trainers? Out of garbage. Please don't withhold any of your <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm going to waver on this one when I say complete and utter shit. So, <laughs> right. you know, uh, so a little bit, it depends on complete and utter shit. So, um, no, I mean, I shouldn't say that. Look, I can tease it to you this way. The, I'll give you the quick answer. We just recently published a study on monozygous twins uh, with about 30-plus years of differing exercise habits. So monozygous means they're the exact same DNA, so they're literally a clone. Yeah. Uh, and they, uh, one of them, the, the one set of the twins, had been doing all endurance work, steady state, jogging, cycling, triathlons, marathons, half marathons, etc. For about 35 years, and the other one hadn't exercised that time. And simply from a fiber type level, uh, what we saw was the, the untrained twin was about 50% fast twitch, 50% slow twitch. But the trained twin was about 95% slow twitch. And so my point is, if you understand any little bit about physiology, what you realize is gene testing can tell you genes, and that's great. But genes don't mean shit if they're not turned on. Yeah. A gene has to be turned on to then express a protein. And so just because you have bullets in the chamber, if the gun's not fired, it doesn't matter. And the exposome is what we'll call it, which is... You know, the the all things not gene, so you inherit gene and, and the rest, lifestyle, training, etc. is is exposome. That that is used to be sort of fifty fifty. People would say it's fifty percent genetic, fifty percent uh, your training. Well, now I think our evidence is is very clear. It's more like eighty percent your training, twenty percent your genetics, and certainly there's a genetic inheritance. I mean, there's this. I was just watching the World's Strongest Man last night. 
little bit from 2018, and, and you know, Thor's on there, and it's like, okay, this doesn't matter what's going to happen. That dude is genetically just way not going to be the same size as me. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure my 5'8 ass is not going to line up to the mountains about his quadricep, right? Yeah. There's no doubt, but you, so that that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is within your own self, how far can you move the needle? And and you can move the needle much farther than we ever thought. So that, that that's really what we're talking about. So a gene-based training program is is taking one or two, or I'll even say like it takes 100 points. But remember, there's 3 billion base pairs. And so really you're making training decisions based on whatever percentage 100 is of 3 billion? That's insanely stupid. That's so short-sighted. There was one study that came out uh, of Alabama where they they had a really neat design, and let's just picture four groups here. And so I'm going to kind of simplify what this is not actually what they did, but just to, to help you visualize it, I'll help you better understand it. So they kind of did the gene testing, and they said, okay, uh, you know, half of you are genetically uh, fast twitch and genetically slow twitch. So the fast twitch people should respond better to or anaerobic type training and the slow twitch should respond better to endurance. Well then what they did is they took, you know, if there's 100 people, and there was, there was uh, 50 people that were fast twitch and 50 people that were slow twitch. They actually cut those groups in half again, so there's 25, 25, 25. So half of the fast twitch got fast twitch training, but half of the fast twitch got slow twitch training, and half of the slow twitch got slow twitch training, and half of the slow twitch got fast twitch training. And what they found is the groups that were matched appropriately to their training so the slows that got slow training and the fast that got fast training responded better than those that were mismatched mm. and so people jumped all over now they're like aha it's proof so this you know this dna fit kit or whatever is going to come out and tell me i'm a fast or i'm a uh, aerobic responder therefore i should do all steady state endurance training uh, well that is so unbelievably stupid it's short-sighted like there's no context there. It's bad science. There's no evidence to what they're they're backing it up. It happened to land in that study, but what are your goals? What are you talking about? Who's the per- I mean, there's so many more factors that go into that. Um, I, I think it's the the, other, the, other, the major something that they're failing is, you know, and, and this is actually where uh, all you, especially Phil, you can jump in here. Okay, just because it would be like saying, okay, look, I, you're pretty. You know, based on your anthropometrics, you're genetically gifted at deadlifting. Yeah. Okay, great. That's going to happen. That's pretty easy to identify. Therefore, should you do all deadlifting training? No. no. <laughs> that's, that's really stupid yeah. if you want to be a powerlifter. You know, some would argue, yeah. actually, then you should do less amount of power training or deadlift training because you're already going to be very good at that. You should spend more time squatting. Well, that's, not a, that's not a DNA test result. That's a coaching decision. That's a strategy. Yeah. That's, that's a tactic decision. So you may say, hey, look, I'm just going to blow it out and deadlift and crush her with the deadlifts and see if I can just survive in the squat, and, and that's how I'm going to win a world championship. Yeah. Or you can say I'm going to try to weak up, shore up my weaknesses so I'm going to roll around. Well, that, that's a coaching tactic decision, and you can't just make that answer for everybody. It's, it's stupid. Uh, or, I mean, I mean, come down to, let's say somebody's predisposed to being slow twitch, but they're five foot. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? We're not going to make you a distance runner. Your stride is three feet less than everybody else. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's probably a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's just it's just really stupid. I mean, again, it would be like it would be as dumb as looking at you and going, "Okay, let's see. Um, you're under six feet tall, so let's see. You should go ahead and be a strength athlete. You're over six feet tall. You should automatically be an endurance athlete. Yeah. Like that's as stupid as the metric can be. And yes. it, like at the population level, if we took a thousand people or ten thousand people. 
would it line up? Possibly. So it might look good at the group level, population level, but it's going to be absolutely dumb at the individual level. So no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't worry about that at all. I mean, all that. Boy, I'm, I'll, I'll stop getting fired up here. But all of that genetic-based testing, it is. It fails so many assumptions uh, that are just not vetted. I promise you. I promise you, without question, we haven't gone through at any level and looked at all kinds of differences of performance and started looking at all these different polymorphisms and genes. That, that hasn't happened. They're, yeah. they're just making major assumptions, let alone taking that and then sort of saying, well, how do these change with epigenetics with different styles of training? How does this change based on you know, other factors? And, uh, what, you know, what's the difference between powerlifting training versus weightlifting type of training uh, versus strongman type of training? That hasn't been done at all. So now you're going to make your training decisions based on that? <sighs> Come on, man. Save that 200 bucks and hire a coach. Holy cow. You know, a lot of this is, is so reminiscent. When I was an undergrad, we, we were presented with the nature-nurture argument instead of the idea of epigenetics or nutrigenetics. And, you know, so, yes, you've got a blueprint, but as you pointed out, Andy, which of those genes are turned on? I mean, there are so many thousands or millions of different variables in a free-living human being's life, right? The, it's, I, I just think it's, it's like what you were saying with fast and slow twitch being a, maybe oversimplified – distinction you know the nature nurture thing that's just come so far you know uh, of course yeah. blueprint's going to matter on some level but for what something local something hormonal something systemic you know I, there's all these these things that come into play and i i think that's why coaching r- remains an art in a lot of ways i mean yes there's a science but there's also an art and like you said the strategies of what a coach does with someone uh to, but to be deterministic because of of a certain you know genotype, and I don't even what? think it adds that much information, man. Yeah, to be honest with you, yeah. I don't think it really tells you much. That I mean, you brought up caffeine. <laughs> okay, well, I'm sure you've probably talked about in the show about um, uh, the little bit of what Nancy Guest has done with looking at you know does caffeine actually increase, decrease, or not affect uh, things like uh, risk of heart failure or heart disease. You know, this is not my area, but <laughs> you get the basic idea here. Well. If you look through the history of literature, you know there was this point where everyone was like, oh, "Okay, coffee is good for you," and then it was like, "Oh no, coffee kills people," because now it's associated with heart failure. And then now it's back, like, "Okay, coffee is good for you." And people are confused. And so if you walk down the street and ask people, "Is coffee or caffeine bad for you? Good for you?" Like you get all these people are confused. Well, it's confused because we never accounted individual variability and variation in it. And so if you look at some of the gene-based work, it looks like. Pretty good evidence that suggests if you are a fast metabolizer, if you have a couple of very specific polymorphisms that allow you to metabolize caffeine very quickly, and it looks like you know under three or so servings of caffeine a day actually has a bit of a protective effect on your health, or, or maybe at worst doesn't matter at all. However, if you're a slow responder, slow metabolizer, if you cross, I think the barrier is, again, three servings or so a day or two servings a day maybe, uh, that the the risk of heart disease goes up dramatically, and so uh, you don't need a DNA test to tell you that. If you know, if it's noon and you have coffee and that keeps you up all night, guess what? You're a slow responder. If you're like me and you could have caffeine at ten o'clock and go to sleep at ten or two, then you're probably a fast responder or a fast metabolizer. But this is the point I'm getting at: is is like now just on this basic level. You can start figuring out, well, if you have these things or don't have these things, that's going to you know, completely change what's true or not true about 
this thing being bad for you, good for you, protective of you, etc. So we haven't even gotten there at all to that level with performance. So we're just now getting there with, you know, does this fucking kill you or not? So like we're, we're way, 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 way behind on a lot of these markers. But yeah, um, this is where the coaching eye and experience should tell you before the gene test can tell you. Like I had a pot of coffee. I was up all night. I felt terrible. Okay, like save your 200 bucks and don't have that much caffeine over your lifetime. Like we're done here. Thank you. You're like here's my PayPal account. You're welcome. Yeah, especially in that case, you're looking at the end point, right? The expression of what that was for something that is way more simple than looking at, well, what is human performance and athletic performance? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, with, with caffeine, I mean, again, with the, you know, nature, nurture being almost a false distinction or, you know, maybe, as Andy's saying, you know, the nature side being overemphasized, right? And, I mean, there's lots of fun discussions about that, but... You know, these these hepatic cytochromes are inducible, too, you know, based on your yes. lifestyle. So, yeah, you've got this or that propensity for a particular, you know, um, polymorphism. But, you know, how are you living and are you ramping that up or down? You know what I mean? If anything, I, I think the coolest thing about exercise physiology is it emphasizes the extreme adaptability of human beings, you know. Oh, be- could not agree more, man. I, lo- I love how you said that. I don't know if you're dead or not, but I'm going to cut you off because that shit fires me up. <laughs> No, that's good. that's the, it. <laughs> well, the thing that really kills me is is people think and forget physiology works on a mosaic. It is it is much more like, uh, you know, the relative um, theory of relativity than it is uh, computer programming. What I mean by that is people think that physiology and training works like computer programming. It's like okay, I can go in here and there's all these lines of code and I can enter one there, and that changes that line. No. The way it works is more like relativity, where you enter a one there, the entire program code gets changed. And you enter a two over there, and the entire code again gets changed. So what I mean by theory of relativity is, if, if, if you know what I'm talking about with Einstein, there, you know, if you put a planet in the middle of a solar system, it doesn't just put a planet in the middle of a solar system. It bends space-time in the entire galaxy around it. So every single thing gets changed. So... It's the it's why science is so hard in physiology because you cannot isolate one variable. As much as we talk about this all the time, right? This is the only way that that you know whether or not your cause had an actual effect is you you isolate one variable, right? Well, that's horseshit in physiology. You can't because when one thing changes, everything else changes. So you you, you can't simply just introduce more protein and look at one gene marker. You right, can't yeah. simply introduce caffeine and look at one gene marker. Because everything else changed based on that. It's it's a giant team. It's like football. Right? You just can't say, like, well, if I move this guy over here and there's a clear path to the end zone. No, because when you move that guy, everyone else sees that and they all adjust because of that. And that's how your physiology is working. But instead of 11 people being on the field, you've got hundreds of thousands or millions of people on the field. And everyone sees what everything else is going on. So, Right. Butterfly effect kind of. Mike and I have talked quite a 100%. bit about that kind of stuff, too. Yeah, it's... I couldn't agree more, right? I mean, that's that's the way complex systems work. And, I mean, science is reductionist by nature, right? It's going to yeah. have to be, but people always, you know, reporters and whatnot want to say, so is this good? You know, and I always laugh that I don't have a piece of equipment in my lab that measures good, you know? And no. they, they, they want you to over-conclude across something, and, and they just don't it, – it's not exciting enough to say, you know, this is a very narrow hypothesis, very narrow, you know – delimited question that we're dealing with 
Um, and whether or not that has much external validity is, you know, is going to be more debatable. You know, so it's just one of those conundrums, I think. So. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm a I'm a fan of Karl Popper on this one. It's, you know, science doesn't prove anything. It can reduce uncertainty a little bit, but that's the best best you're ever going to get. Right on. Yeah, uh, you can prove things to be not true, but I can't prove them ever to be true. Right. Exactly. I, I often that's sort of my mantra with a lot of students is you know science doesn't prove you know anything particular. You know, it's going to support or reject a very narrow hypothesis, and you know that's that's one of um one of our limitations you know that's that's how it works and we're going to have to answer things that's why a lot of times industry talk is so different from uh scientist talk right and i it might bore people that everything is not a new revolution it's not a complete rewriting of the <laughs> rules because that's what they want people want to hear that yeah. they don't want to hear that it's going to inch forward and and it's very specific to the population and you know and to your point about people with you know like genetic variants of certain things that's where things are going to start to move i would think like when you talk about population specificity we like to say oh this is in men this is in women this is an oh, elite yeah, yeah. this is in recreational but oh no we need to break down those groups a lot more and we're going to have to start to understand that a certain study may apply to me or it really may not you know and, yep. and it's not as simple as gender or training status i mean that's not bad we're trying to control something here you know yep. but yeah things are going to move in a direction that's going to make what we do now I mean, definitely in nutrition, I got to think in training as well, just infantilely basic, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. More so, memorial for sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, th- that's cool. I know Phil's off to the gym. So uh, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, man. Always good to wrap with you guys. It's always fun. All right. We'll wrap this up, and then we will see everyone next time. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists... The bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, 
please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.